Well, good morning, everyone. I trust you are ready to be encouraged this morning. Thank you for great singing and honoring Christ in that way. And we can be encouraged as brothers and sisters in Christ by remembering the great work that our Lord has done. If you're visiting with us, if you're a guest with us, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Well, it's a privilege for us as a church to be able to host these every fall. And if there's anything we can do to help you, questions you might have throughout the day, we'd love to help you. We'd love to um, show you the love of Christ. We're glad that you're here. Trust we'll have a great day together. If you'd join me in praying, and then we'll introduce our guest speaker. Father, thank you for this morning and for the privilege that is ours to be able to have hope and to be able to know you according to your grace. You've been so kind and gracious to us and showing us mercy and extending your loving kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Uh, thank you for giving us a desire to worship you and thank you for guiding us and directing us. Encourage us this morning and this weekend uh, as we truly do want to honor Christ in every aspect of our life. We do want to uh, live as living sacrifices that are acceptable to you. And we're asking you now that you would help us even through instruction to be able to do that in a way that we're not doing it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, according to the NHL website, David Van Drunen is a, quote, hard-nosed competitor who plays for the Odessa Jackalopes. Did you know that? Oh, this isn't a hockey conference. That must be a different David Van Drunen. Do you know that, David Van Drunen? Oh, there are a lot of you in this world. Okay, I suppose some of your adversaries might say you're a hard-nosed competitor uh, in the theological realm. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, in all seriousness, uh, our guest speaker this weekend uh, is David Van Drunen. He comes to us from Southern California, where he and his wife, Catherine, uh, live. And they have a 15-year-old son, Jack. Is that right? And... Uh, Dr. Van Drunen is a professor at Westminster Seminary, California, where he teaches systematic theology as well as Christian ethics. And he uh, is passionate about a number of things, but one thing he is committed to and has been committed to while there is training the next generation of pastors uh, to not only be um, those who would care for people, but also would care for them uh, enough to tell them the truth about God uh, in a way that can be communicated clearly and biblically. And so that's what he's really given himself to. Um, one thing he's written on, and many of us have benefited from his writings on uh, issues related to Christ and culture. Uh, his book, Living in God's Two Kingdoms, uh, is uh, a book that has really helped me a lot, helped a number of you a lot. And so we thought it'd be great if he came here and talked on those kinds of issues. And so with that said, I want him to come and help us think through how we might honor Christ in all of life. And so given that he's a Northwestern fan, is that right? Really? I, did they have a football team? Um, I think Nebraska is maybe... there was a big game a couple of years ago I in think Lincoln. there might have been a big game. Oh, his microphone's on. I didn't want it to go this way. <laughs> I think maybe we play in November, so it's really good we're not playing this weekend because we wouldn't want him to feel bad. But any, I keep digressing. Um, let's give a good Cornhusker welcome to Dr. David Van Drunen. Thank you. It is uh, really nice to be here. I appreciate the warm welcome that many of you have already given me. 
and look forward to meeting many others of you during the course of uh, the day or tomorrow. Uh, I am being, I actually went to Northwestern, and I'm a Chicago area native, so it's nice to come back to the Midwest. It's nice to live in California and to come back to the Midwest. Uh, it's no, probably no news to you that our weather's a little bit better in Southern California. But the fall is, or it is my favorite time of the year in, in the Midwest. I said to Pat when he picked me up at the airport yesterday, as it's 90 degrees and the wind's howling, I said, it doesn't really feel like a Midwestern autumn day. But then on second thought this morning, when it's 60 degrees and raining, I thought, yeah, this actually is a lot like the, the, uh, the Midwestern autumn. So uh, it is, but whatever the weather, it's good to be here among you and uh, to talk about these, these things uh, with you. The, the title of the conference it has, in a sense, a very general, almost dull name. Is it Christ and Culture or Christianity and Culture or something like that? Uh, but there is a sense in which uh, what Pat said just a, a moment ago is true, that I'm basically here to talk to you about all of life. So it's not a small topic. It's really contemplating what, how do we lead faithful Christian lives, pursuing excellence and pursuing God's glory, pursuing love of our neighbor in, in everything we do. And how do we do it? Uh, how do we understand the different responsibilities we have in the different areas of life? And uh, there's a sense in which this is this is both an individual issue and a corporate issue. And let me just say briefly what, what I, I mean by that. There are, this is a question that involves us as individuals, as individual Christians. We, we, I take it that those, we Christians know that we are called to worship God. We're called to times of, of prayer and worship. We're called to fellowship with our fellow believers. We're called to life in the church and the support in various ways of the mission of the church. But we also know that we spend a whole lot of our lives doing other things. Uh, We are called to, or at least I guess that's the question, are we called to these things? Or how do we understand our uh, all these other activities, these other endeavors of Christian life that we find ourselves involved in, how do we understand these other organizations and these institutions outside the church that actually eat up a lot of our time? Uh, how do we understand the nature of our participation in these things? Uh, and the kind of questions we may ask as individuals is, is it, is it okay for me to work for a secular business, to work with unbelievers, to work for unbelievers? And if so, how do I do that in a way that, that honors Christ? Uh, how do we educate our children? What sort of schools uh, should we use uh, to educate our children, or should we not make use of schools? Uh, we think a lot about politics, at least I, I don't know you all, but Christians often think a lot about politics. Uh, should we be involved in politics? Uh, what kind of importance do we place on it? And what's the nature of our involvement? What kind of books may we read? What kind of movies may we enjoy? What sort of television can we watch? These are the kinds of individual issues that, I'm not going to be talking about all of these things, but those are the kinds of individual issues uh, that we face. 
But I also said that this is a corporate issue. And what I mean by corporate, it means is that this is not just a question for us as individuals, but it's also a question for us as a church body. All right, what are we as a church? How are we supposed to live in this world? What is the church's place among all these many other organizations and institutions of this world? Are there activities that we ought to be pursuing as individual Christians that perhaps the church as a corporate body ought not to be pursuing? Are there things that we do as a corporate body that maybe we're not supposed to be doing as individuals? What is the relationship of the church to the state or to other organizations and institutions of this world? What is unique about the church? Does the church have some sort of distinctive way in which it manifests the kingdom of God here in this world that maybe the state doesn't or maybe the business you work for doesn't? or the club that you belong to doesn't. So we want to think this morning and this afternoon about these issues, both on an individual level and as a corporate, uh, 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 on a corporate level. How are we, as individuals and as a church body, to live in this broader world and understand our distinctive Christian responsibilities? Now, as we, as we pursue some of these issues today, I think it'd be helpful if I begin by reflecting on what we might understand as the extremes of the Christian spectrum of beliefs on this issue. It's not surprising, it shouldn't be surprising to you to learn that Christians have been thinking about these issues for 2,000 years. As soon as there was a Christian church, Christians were thinking about this question. How do we live in this broader world? How do we relate to our unbelieving neighbors? Uh, What sorts of activities can we join in with them? All those sorts of things. And there have been a variety of answers that Christians have offered. And we might in some ways put these views on a kind of a spectrum. So what do we find at different ends of that spectrum? Well... On one side of that spectrum, we find some convictions that we might label something like Christians need to retreat from the broader society. So if if you're looking for a word, maybe the word retreat, and I don't mean retreat like you go away for a couple days to a campground and hear inspiring speakers, but retreat in the sense of a strong sense that many Christians have, that this world is an evil place. This world is full of temptations. This world is full of things that threaten to entice us away from Christ and faithful Christian living. And so as far as possible, we need to separate ourselves from this world and from unbelievers who might threaten to seduce us Uh, into uh, wicked ways. Now, at the really, really far end of this spectrum, we might think of monks and hermits who really try to leave human society altogether. Or we might think of the Amish who want to set up their own 
Christian societies in a, in, a, in a small place and try to live lives that, as far as possible, have nothing to do with the broader world. But there are less extreme versions of this that still are on one side of the spectrum. And this may be a, a kind of way of thinking that many of you feel or many of you have felt at some point uh, in life. And I'm talking here about a kind of perspective on things that, in which you look at maybe your secular job and ordinary occupations as a kind of a necessary evil, as the kind of thing that you do only because if you don't make some money, you can't feed your family. If you don't make some money, you can't support the mission of the church. A kind of attitude that um, really the only kinds of books we ought to be reading are Christian books. And the only kind of movies we ought to see are Christian films. And really the only kind of people we ought to be socializing with are fellow believers who uh, share our own convictions. So there are different ways that this, the, the views on this end of the spectrum can be expressed. But I want to hold that out for a, a moment for you, this kind of retreat from society or to keep away from the wickedness of the world as much as we can. But what about the other side of the spectrum? If I was looking for a word, a single word to contrast with retreat, I'll suggest the word takeover. And this is, this is uh, a, a way of looking at things, a perspective that a lot of other Christians have shared through the centuries. And this view basically says Christians need to be everywhere. We need to get out into every area of life. We need to be involved in every activity. We need to be penetrating every organization and every institution. Uh, we need to make Christian influence felt uh, everywhere. And in fact, we need to try to Christianize everything. We need to try to Christianize government and Christianize the law and Christianize our economic system and Christianize the arts and Christianize science and Christianize sports. And we need to send our best and our brightest to, to infiltrate um, the, uh, every echelon of human society. Uh, the world and its culture is ours as Christians, and so we need to claim it for Christ. I hope you can see the difference between these extremes. Uh, are we as Christians supposed to, in a sense, get a, as far as possible away from this world to try to keep our purity? Or are we to try to get as involved as possible in order to make the world as Christian as we can make it? It's no wonder that... Christians have been divided on this question of Christ and culture. And no wonder why so many different kinds of proposals have been, have been, have been, uh, have been offered. Now, I'd like to suggest to you, as we now begin thinking constructively about this issue, that both of those extremes have captured something very important about Christian truth but both sides are in danger of forgetting other 
important truths. And if we are to find a biblical model, we're going to have to learn something from both those extremes, but we're also going to have to be on our guard against certain temptations, certain dangers that each is liable to. On the one hand, what about those folks on this, this end of the spectrum that I've labeled takeover, the, ta- the Christian takeover of society extreme? Well, one thing that's very helpful about those on that side of the spectrum is the positive view of ordinary Christian vocations, or I should say Christians involved in ordinary vocations, that we really are supposed to glorify God in all that we do, that God has made us with a variety of abilities and talents and passions and interests, and God can be and is glorified as we take up a variety of tasks and as we get involved in these various areas of human culture, I think that is an important biblical truth that we'll be thinking about today. On the other side, what do we have to learn from those who I've labeled this the, the retreat side of the spectrum? I think those on that side of the spectrum are very helpful in reminding us that there are a lot of temptations in this world. Uh, there is a lot of evil in this world uh, which is there to entice us and that we as Christians are never really and fully at home in this world. That as scripture says, our true citizenship is elsewhere. Our true citizenship is in heaven And there is a very important sense in which we are pilgrims, sojourners, strangers in this world. But now having said those, you know, identified those things that we can learn from those different extremes, perhaps you can appreciate just initially, it's not an easy task to understand who we are in this world and how we're supposed to be living. On the one hand, we're called to active involvement in this world, taking up a variety of tasks and activities and jobs with a certain gusto and enthusiasm on the one hand, and on the other hand, knowing that our true, our true allegiances, our ultimate citizenship is somewhere else. Our true hope does not lie in the activities and the institutions of this present world. And so we rightly look for, we're looking for some sort of biblical, theological model to help us to navigate these challenging waters. And I want to suggest to you today that there's an idea that goes back to the Protestant Reformation that is extremely helpful for giving us a guide, for giving us a model, for giving us what are glasses in which to begin investigating and living out good answers to this question? Now, when I say the Protestant Reformation, there are probably two big issues that come to most people's minds. Justification by faith alone and sola scriptura, scripture alone as our final authority. And I can't argue with either of those, 
Those are crucial, foundational things. And praise God we had a reformation to bring those great truths to light again. But there's another very important reformation idea that is not as well known, but I think also really, really helpful. And that's the doctrine of the two kingdoms. There were theologians prior to the Reformation who said things that resembled the doctrine of the two kingdoms, but it's really at the Reformation that people started talking about the two kingdoms. Both Lutherans, you know, those who were following Martin Luther uh, and Reformed, those who followed more in the path of John Calvin, John Knox, and others like them, talked about the two kingdoms, and different Protestant groups had some some different nuances in how they understood the doctrine. But let me try to give you, uh, to set out first, in a nutshell, what this doctrine is. And as the morning and afternoon proceed, I'll try to unpack that and try to show you where I think this idea is grounded in the scriptures and what the implications are. But first, let me just give you a really brief summary of what this doctrine of the two kingdoms is. Maybe it'd be helpful if first I told you what the doctrine of the two kingdoms is not. When you see a conference title like Christianity and Culture, you might think that I'm going to say the two kingdoms are Christianity and culture. But that's not right. right? Your Christianity is about both kingdoms. And there's culture in both kingdoms. So don't think in those terms. What do we mean positively then by the two kingdoms? Well, in the doctrine of the two kingdoms, there's only one king. And that is God ruling in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But God in his son rules this world in two distinct ways. And it's those two distinct ways of God's ruling this world that leads us to speak of two kingdoms. One king, but two rules, two distinct reigns of God in this world. One king, two kingdoms. Now, on the one hand, God is preserving this world that he created. Sometimes we talk about the doctrine of providence. You may think especially of one kingdom in terms of the doctrine of providence. God is the creator of all things, and God preserves this world. He preserves human society. He preserves the forces of nature. He preserves the sun, moon, and stars in their courses. And as he preserves human society, he preserves human institutions. He preserves family life. He preserves civil government and legal systems and and economic systems that keep life going, that make human life productive. This rule of God extends over all things. There's nothing in this universe that escapes this providential rule of God. All human beings are under this rule of God, whether they acknowledge the one true God or deny him. That's one rule of God, this preservative, providential rule of God. But there's another rule of God that's present in this world. 
And we might think of this as God's work of redemption. God rules this world not only as its preserver, but also as its redeemer. And that even in the midst of God's general providential rule of this world, he has initiated a plan of salvation. He has set that in motion. He has established a people of his own. He's established a church. And he has called people in the midst of this world into that church. And he applies to them the benefits of salvation. He joins them into a holy community. He he prepares them for everlasting life. And this work of God in building a church and in redeeming a people is a distinct work from that general work of preserving this world by his providence. And it's this basic distinction in these two rules of God that the Protestant reformers and their heirs, uh, that's what they were referring to when they talked about the two kingdoms. On the one hand, this preservative, providential rule of God in this world is what they called the common kingdom or the civil kingdom. Uh, I'm, I'm going to refer to it as the common kingdom. That, that's actually more my language. Uh, they preferred language of the civil kingdom. Martin Luther called it the kingdom of God's left hand. On the other hand, or what Luther called God, the kingdom of God's right hand, we have this spiritual kingdom, this redemptive kingdom that God is building. Now, two things I want you to note initially as we think about these two kingdoms, this twofold rule of God. Neither of these kingdoms is morally neutral. Neither of these kingdoms is autonomous, independent from God. Notice, when we talk about two kingdoms, we're talking about God's two kingdoms. God rules both of these kingdoms. They're both his. They're both accountable to him. Even though they're distinct even though there may be different responsibilities that we have as we live under these two rules of God, they are both gods. And a second thing I want you to note initially is that we as Christians are citizens of both kingdoms. We live under God's providential rule. We live with all other human beings in many institutions and organizations and activities in this life. But we're citizens of that common kingdom, God's common providential rule, but we're also citizens of this redemptive reign of God, citizens of his church, citizens, ultimately, of that new heavens and new earth. Now, our degree of allegiance to these two kingdoms is not identical we have a higher allegiance to that redemptive kingdom of God. And yet, we do belong to both in important ways. Now, I hope that provides some initial grounding of what I'm talking about, and I hope that will get filled in uh, as we go along. But perhaps you're thinking to yourself, uh, is this two kingdoms model, is it really helpful for us today. 
when we think about the Reformation and think about justification by faith alone or think about Scripture alone as our, our highest authority, there may seem to be something timeless about this, these doctrines. Right? Not hard to see how these doctrines, which were so, so life-changing for the Protestant Reformers, continue to be life-changing for us in the early 21st century. But what about the two kingdoms? Because... We living in the United States in the early 21st century, boy, it's not the same world that the Protestant reformers lived in in the 16th century, 16th century Europe. Protestant reformers didn't live in liberal democracies. They didn't, have, they didn't know anything like the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. They didn't live in a, in a world of global capitalism. And a lot of the things the Protestant reformers said about human society and civil government seem kind of strange to us. Doesn't really seem to apply to us very well. So is there something about this two kingdoms doctrine which maybe fit in a world long ago but doesn't really work for our life today? Well, I want to suggest to you that the answer is the two kingdoms doctrine still remains very important very relevant, extremely helpful for helping us think through our responsibilities as individuals and churches in this world. And one of the things it does, I believe, is give us something of a helpful balance between those two extremes that I mentioned at the beginning of this lecture. Helping us to see the strengths of both of those extremes, and also to guard against the potential temptations that each of those extremes present to us. You see, as citizens of God's common kingdom, as participants in this universal, preservative, providential rule of this world, we can understand ourselves as Christians to have a variety of callings in this world. We're not called just to be worshiping in the church, as important, as central as that is. That as those who live under God's common rule, we can and should be out there in a variety of activities, in a variety of endeavors, seeking to glorify God and bless our neighbors. These activities can be good, God-honoring But at the same time, as we consider that we are citizens of God's redemptive kingdom, citizens of his church here and now, citizens ultimately of a heavenly kingdom that is going to be revealed fully on the last day, we understand that our true citizenship, our ultimate hope, does not lie in this world. It does not lie in civil government, in politics, in economics, in the variety of activities that we engage ourselves in day by day. Here, the two kingdoms, I suggest, offers a way to navigate these difficult waters between the extremes to which Christians have been tempted. Now, I want to turn, for the remainder of this uh, first lecture, to begin thinking about some biblical foundation for this doctrine. Uh, thus far, I've, ta- I've been talking in pretty general, abstract categories. 
But I hope it'll be helpful for you to hear now some basic biblical foundation. Is this just an interesting idea, or is this actually derived from the Scriptures? I believe it's derived from the Scriptures, and I want to help you see how that is. And the first way that I want to help you see how this is derived from the Scriptures, which is our task now for the rest of of this lecture, is to call your attention to two biblical covenants. If you're familiar with the Scriptures, I assume most of you have at least a general familiarity of the Scriptures. I'll try to not assume too much basic Scripture knowledge. But if you're familiar with the Scriptures, you'll know that... God makes a variety of covenants with his people throughout the story of of the Bible. Uh, We see at various significant uh, points in the plan of biblical history that God comes and he makes covenants with his people and he makes certain promises to them and he gives certain uh, obligations to them. I want to suggest to you right now that another way we could talk about living in God's two kingdoms is to talk about living under two of God's covenants. And this might make it a little bit more concrete. What I'm suggesting is that these two kingdoms that I've been talking about find their foundation, their biblical foundation, in two covenants that God makes with his people. Maybe kingdom sounds a little bit a little bit foreign, right? We're Americans. We don't like we don't like royalty. Right? The idea of having a king is that's not who we are. So a kingdom, maybe that doesn't sound quite right. But when we talk about covenant in scripture, we're talking about God coming to human beings and entering into a relationship with them. God coming and making promises to people, committing himself to them and asking for their commitments in return. That might be a little bit more concrete. So what are these two covenants that I think help to unlock our understanding of this Christianity and culture question? The first covenant I'd like to reflect on with you for a few minutes is the covenant that God makes with Noah after the great flood. And the account of this covenant, it begins at the end of Genesis 8 and continues through chapter 9, verse 17. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to be flipping around your Bibles wildly as I lecture today, but if you, if you have uh, a Bible in front of you, if you'd like to, uh, if, if, if you have interest in turning uh, to it, you may want to look uh, at the end of Genesis 8, beginning of Genesis 9. I'll be making a few references to that over the next few minutes. Let me just give you a brief overview. God has just destroyed the world with a a great flood. Uh, God has seen the rebellion, the violence in this world. He sent this flood as a kind of a foretaste of the final judgment, which is to come. God has preserved Noah and his family. And now, after this flood, God comes and he makes a covenant with Noah, uh, with his family, and we'll see with a lot more than just Noah and his family. Here I want to suggest to you that this covenant sets before us 
God's great work of providence, God's great preservative reign in this world that I was describing earlier. Here in the covenant with Noah, we find the foundation of this common kingdom, this common rule of God in this world. Let me point out four characteristics of this covenant. I don't think this covenant gets nearly as much attention as it, uh, as it probably deserves. And I want you to note these four characteristics of this covenant, and then I'm going to ask you to compare those in a few minutes to another biblical covenant that we're going to examine. One thing, here's the first of these characteristics of this covenant for you to note. This covenant, God makes with everyone and everything. It is a universal covenant. You might ask yourself, is there anything in this entire universe that is not somehow brought into this covenant relationship with God? I think the answer is no. God says uh, in Genesis 9, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So basically, you, Noah, your family, and your offspring after you for all generations. So all human beings from this point on forward are part of this covenant. But not only all human beings from then on, but also every living creature, birds, livestock, every beast of the earth. Right? So all the, the whole animal kingdom, all are part of this covenant. But it's not only, it, it doesn't even end there. Because God also has promises to make to the ground. He promises that he's never going to destroy the face of the earth again with a flood as he has done. But that doesn't even cover it. Because at the end of Genesis 8, Genesis 8.22, he says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So he's, he's extending this promise even beyond this world to even the forces of nature. The sun, moon, and stars are part of this covenant that God makes. There's nothing in this universe that escapes these promises that God is making. This is a universal covenant that God makes. Sometimes this is referred to in, in theology as, a, as God's covenant with nature, uh, a covenant uh, that God makes with all the world. So that's one really important thing to note about this covenant. Here's a second thing to note. This covenant, like all biblical covenants, promise something. God makes promises in the covenants that he makes. What is promised in this covenant? Well, this covenant promises preservation. God promises to uphold this world from destruction, from dissolution. He promises that human society is going to continue. He promises that The seasons, day and night, summer and winter, sea time and harvest, they're going to continue in their regular cycles. He promises that rain and sunshine are going to come in their proper time. You might also know what he doesn't promise. He doesn't promise salvation in this covenant. There's no promise of the forgiveness of sins. There's no promise of a coming Messiah. There's no promise of everlasting life in a new heavens and new earth. 
those promises that we find all over the place elsewhere in Scripture, they're not found here. God promises to the entire world this preservation, this maintenance of the created order that God has made. Okay, third. A third important characteristic of this covenant. This covenant, we might say, is about ordinary, mundane activities. You see, in every covenant, just about every covenant that God makes, he not only makes promises, but he also has requirements for his human partners. He asks certain things in return, or certain obligations that human beings have as they live in covenant with God. What are the kinds of obligations that we have here? They're very ordinary, There are really only three. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Uh, He says that twice, actually, in chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 7. It's the same command that God gave at the end of Genesis 1, at the end of of his creating. The first thing he said to human beings, basically, is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So basically, get married, have families, Spread out in this world. Basic, ordinary. Uh, A second thing that God says is, basically, I'm giving you everything to eat. I'm giving you plants and animals to eat. Just don't eat meat with the blood in it. You may... I'm not going to try to wax eloquent about all that's going on there. Let me just summarize it this way. Um, Eat in a civilized way. Right? Don't eat like an animal. Right? When in, you ever watch those National Geographic you know, TV shows? You know, what does a lion do when it's hungry? It just pounces and eats. Right? It eats with the blood still in it. Right? Don't do that. You know, eat plants, eat animals, but cook your meat. Sit down at a table. Eat like a civilized human being. Okay, so... Be fruitful and multiply. Eat. Pretty basic. And finally, chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What's he saying here? Do justice. You've got violent people in your midst. You're going to need to have some kind of a legal system in order to be sure that the wicked are restrained and that proper punishment is given to those who seek to wreck human society by their violent behavior. So I hope you see why I say this is ordinary, mundane activities, not, not unimportant activities by any means. But these are, it's the ordinary stuff of life. Notice just for a moment the kinds of things that aren't commanded here. Do you notice there's no command to have faith, to believe? There's no command about worship, proper way to worship. The things that God commands here fit his purposes in this covenant. The purpose of his covenant is preserve this world. And so he tells us some of the the basics. 
for how he's going to preserve human society in this world. If there's going to be a human society in this world, there are at least three things that have to happen. You have to have procreation. You don't procreate. Human society is not going to last very long. You have to eat. You don't eat. Human society is not going to last very long. And you need to have... You need to do justice. You need to have some sort of justice system. You don't do justice. Human society is not going to last very long. And so what you have here set forth in this covenant with Noah is a basic minimal morality. It's not the fullness of what the, the virtuous, excellent moral life is supposed to look like. These are the basics. This is the, the minimum of what human beings need to do if they are to continue to survive in this world. Okay, let me now mention a fourth characteristic of this covenant. This covenant is in effect, it's put into effect by God for a really long time, but not forever. Now, if you, I didn't read this whole account of this covenant for you, uh, but if you would read it, you would find in chapter 9, verse 16, that God calls this covenant an everlasting covenant. And it's important for you to note that the, the, the Hebrew word which is used there, the, it, the Old Testament was written originally in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew word that is used there for everlasting does not necessarily mean forever and ever, eternal, never-ending. That word can mean for a really, really long time, sort of indefinitely. What we also note here is at the end of chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 22, God says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. While the earth remains. So read between the lines for a moment. These promises are only good for as long as the world as we know it remains. But that's not going to be forever. There's a time coming in which the world as we know it will no longer remain. This covenant with Noah is in place for a really long time. It's still in force now because the earth still remains. But there's a day coming in which God is going to do some great work. We now know it as the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a day coming when no longer this covenant with, with, with Noah is going to be in effect. It is temporary. It is about this present world as we know it and about God's governing this world as we know it. Okay, those are some basic features of this covenant. And what I'm suggesting to you now is that this covenant provides the foundation for what I was calling earlier the common kingdom. You see, this is a way in which God rules in this world. He rules in this world in part through this covenant with Noah. This is the way in which God preserves this world. He preserves family life. He preserves broader social life. He preserves uh, civil government. He preserves the forces of nature. He preserves the crops that grow. Here is God's common, universal, providential rule 
in this world. And you see, we as Christians, we live under this rule of God. We, along with all of our unbelieving neighbors, we share in common God's government under the covenant with Noah. We, have, we Christians have no special privileges under this covenant. Do you notice that? We have no special privileges. We and our unbelieving neighbors alike live under this rule of God. Okay. I said a few minutes ago that I was going to talk about two covenants, that we find this twofold rule of God, these two kingdoms of God established in two biblical covenants. So now I want to turn ahead. It's actually just a few pages later in your Bibles to the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Now, I'm going to cheat a little bit because I want to talk about a couple other biblical covenants that we find as well. Because the covenant that God makes with Abraham, it establishes certain promises. God makes certain commitments that we see unfold later in history when God makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai under Moses. And we see those promises blossom even further when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and Christ makes that new covenant with his church. But just to make things simple for a moment, I want you to consider the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Here I want to suggest that we find this sort of formal establishment of what I call the redemptive kingdom, this redemptive rule of God. I hope you understand here that I'm not making the claim that before the covenant with Noah, God didn't exercise his providence in this world. Right? But with the covenant with Noah, God formally established that providential rule under a covenant. So I'm also not saying here that God didn't save people before the days of Abraham. There's good reason from Scripture to think that he did. He did make promises of salvation before that. But here with Abraham, God enters into this formal relationship with his people, with a special people bestowing upon them these benefits of salvation. Now, as we think about Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, where we find these accounts of this covenant with Noah, I want you to note four characteristics of this covenant. And these four characteristics correspond with the four characteristics that I just mentioned with the covenant with Noah. But I want you to note that all of these characteristics are different. There are some really different things going on in these two covenants. First of all, with whom does God make this covenant? Well, God comes and he makes this covenant with Abraham and his house. With a little slice of humanity. You see how different that is from the covenant with Noah? in which God makes it with every single human being as well as with all of creation. Here, the covenant with Abraham is made with just one man and his broader household. Now, we know that God made promises that one day he was going to bless 
a great multitude of people. Abraham's offspring were going to be like the sand on the seashore. But even then, these promises were never going to extend to every single human being in this world. This is made with part of the human race, not with the entirety of it. So that's one thing to note. Secondly, what is promised in this covenant? Well, what God promises in this covenant boils down to this. He promises salvation. He promises redemption. He ultimately promises everlasting life. In the covenant with Noah, God promised to preserve this world. He preserved to uphold seasons and years and sea time and harvest and human society. God doesn't talk about those things in the covenant with Abraham. But he does make promises about a coming Messiah. In fact, Paul explains that in Galatians 3. He says that when God promised blessings to Abraham and his seed, he was ultimately talking about Christ, about a Messiah that was to come. Now you might also think, what did God require of Abraham? This is a third characteristic. We saw under the covenant with Noah that God had he laid out some basic requirements, sort of a minimal morality. You know, it's sort of the bare minimum that it needs to happen if human society is going to continue in this world. Well, it's interesting that when God comes and makes his covenant with Abraham, he's not, he's not concerned about giving him regulations about eating. He's not giving him regulations about doing justice about a civil civil courts and political system. Not talking about those sorts of things. But he does require faith of Abraham. Remember Genesis 15, God makes promises. And what does it say about Abraham's response? He believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul explains in a number of places, that's justification. Hearing promises of God, believing, believing and being saved. God also requires of Abraham worship. Abraham has to put aside his idols, the idols that he worshipped back in Ur of the Chaldeans. He has to put those away. He has to worship the one true God. He has to circumcise his, his children. He has to teach them the ways of the Lord. This is all set out in Genesis 17. These are the sorts of things. It's not a minimal morality for getting along in this world. He makes these saving, blessed promises to Abraham, and Abraham is to respond in faith and worship. Finally, a fourth characteristic of this covenant that God makes with Abraham. How long does this covenant last? This gets into some bigger questions about the story, the bigger story of Scripture I told you just a moment ago that the covenant with Noah lasts for a really long time, but God didn't make the covenant to last absolutely forever. There's going to be a time in history in which the covenant with Noah is terminated when the world as we know it no longer remains on that great and final day of, 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 God, of, of the final judgment. How about this covenant with Abraham? Here, I want to suggest to you that this covenant with Abraham is never going to come to an end. God made this promise to Abraham about a seed. 
about a coming Messiah, about blessings to come to all the nations. As God said to Abraham, I will be your God, you will be my people. Well, you might ask, when does that promise get terminated? When do those promised blessings of God come to an end? I think the answer is never. You know when the last time in Scripture is that we hear those words, I will be your God, you will be my people? It's Revelation 21. It's in the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, our everlasting home. The first thing we hear from God, the first thing he says to us in the new Jerusalem, it echoes the promises to Abraham. I will be your God, you will be my people. The commitments that God made to Abraham are never going to end. Sea time and harvest, day and night, summer and winter, those are going to end. But the promise that God will be our God and we will be his people, that's never going to come to an end. So let me suggest to you that here in this covenant with Abraham, we have the formal establishment of what I called earlier the redemptive kingdom. God coming to a people of his very own, a chosen people, a special people, setting them apart from the world in certain ways and making special promises, special commitments to them, calling them to continue to live in this world, to be active in this world, but also to have a special hope to have special responsibilities, to be gathered together as a covenant community, ultimately, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to be citizens, not of any earthly kingdom, but of an everlasting heavenly kingdom, now being made manifest, as God calls a people to himself in this world. And so, as we come to the end of this first session... Let me conclude by saying, we Christians live in two kingdoms because we live under two covenants. We continue to live under this covenant with Noah, along with all people, all of our unbelieving neighbors, all of nature. But we also live under this covenant with Abraham. We now call it the new covenant. I think we only can understand the new covenant as we understand what Paul says in Galatians 3, that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are united to him, then you are heirs of the promises made to Abraham. Right? We continue to enjoy the benefits of the promises of Abraham. So we belong to two covenants. We belong to two kingdoms, two rules of God. And we have responsibilities in both of these. But these responsibilities are not identical. And there are some very important questions that come before us. Is how does this play out? How do we put these general truths into practice day by day in our lives? And it's to some of those questions that we will return in the next lecture.